Hey you, and welcome back to the Rhizocast with Sue Hunt. Founded and supported by Rhizo Magazine, find us at rhizomagazine.com or suehunt.com. What's Rhizo? It's a collaborative community of artists across the globe, publishing magazines four times a year on the solstice and the equinox. In the Rhizocast, expect solo casts, Dan and Sue episodes, founders of Rhizo episodes, and a wide range of guests to cover social and environmental issues, collective consciousness topics, and the depth of human artistic expression. This is a podcast for breaking binaries and creative conversation centered around honesty and transparency. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting us, supporting our guests and our hosts by buying our art, contributing to our missions, and sharing our work. Please leave us a review or reshare the RISOcast. This makes all of these episodes possible. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to this week's RISOcast. And I'm sitting here with my younger sister, Diggy Lloyd, Ducky Hunt. You either know her by Diggy or Ducky. And she is one of the founding members of RISO Magazine. Ducky and I created the Sister Body Deck together. And this will just be an open conversation centered around creativity between two sisters. So welcome to the Rhizocast, Diggy. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, of course. Psyched you're here. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Feeling great. It's getting hot. Summertime's here. It's it's no joke this time. Yeah. Luckily, I think we're headed into monsoon season a little bit starting on Friday. So fingers crossed. Yeah, we could do for some rain. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'd love to just dive right into it and get started with creativity and some personal rituals you have around creativity. Well, actually, before we go there, let's go ahead and, you know, obviously I know all the ins and outs of what you've done over the years, but if you could just sure. give us a little bit of your background besides Sister Body and Rizo Magazine, and we'll start there. Yeah, it's a good idea. Hey, I'm Diggy. You can either probably know me as Diggy or as Ducky, either or works these days. But um, I'm a photographer. I've been photographing for probably close to 15 years now. I started when I was in high school and it was just something that was, wow, like so life-changing for me at that time when I when I discovered photography and being in the dark room. And I continued my studies through college and I went to art school. Where did you go to school? I went to Parsons School of Design in New York and uh, moved there when I was 18 and then stayed in New York for majority of my career up until 2019. So that's that's a long haul for me. Um, you know, I never, ever thought I would leave New York, but everybody has a time and place to make big changes. And, and that came very quickly for me in 2019. Um and yeah, so been photographing and quickly started my commercial career right after college and started working with an agent and a lot of magazines and being constant contributors to publications like Paper Magazine and Teen Vogue. And um, I loved that. It was amazing. I was, you know, out every night photographing my friends or at parties or um, getting into the music scene. I was a DJ for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, You're always begging me to drive your turntables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Making you haul on my equipment places. <laughs> I almost called you the other day to do that, too. And I was like, no, she's paid her dues. She's good. <laughs> oh, I can help out. It'd be yeah. funny. <laughs> but okay I um, actually yeah. don't know this but how did you start your commercial qu- career so quickly out of undergrad because that is sure. pretty rare and just a little snapshot of how that happened yeah that's a that's a really good question and you know there's so many people that I've been lucky enough to work for and two of them being in the most influential female photographers in the history of photography, one of them being Mary Ellen Mark and the other one being Annie Leibovitz. And I was exposed to so many people so quickly through through working for both of them that, you know, they were both so um, fostering of young artists, which I think is, mm-hmm. so, you know, Mary Ellen... I'll start to cry, but um, 
It's okay. It's important. Dang it. I didn't want to do this so quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a sister cast, so there'll be tears. Um, No, she's, um, she was incredibly um, inspiring and very welcoming of young artists and young talent. And she was a very early editor of my work and a very early advocate of giving me assignments. And, um, you know, I met her when I was 14. I actually met her when I was in high school. And, you know, I remember coming home and telling my mom I was like bored one day in high school. So she was like, oh, why don't you pick up the phone and see if you can go work for Mary Ellen? Like, just give the studio a call. Mm, At the time, I thought my mom was, yeah, I thought my mom was so psycho. Um, (laughs) Then they were like, oh, sure. Do you want to come? Like, do you want to come start next week? And I was like, oh, my gosh, sure. And at the time, they only had interns come like once or twice a day at this or once or twice a week at the at their studio. But I was like, I mean, I came to New York to do this and I'm 15 years old. So I just showed up at her studio every day like, okay, what do you need me to do? Do you need me to frame prints? Do you need me to run errands? Do you need me to mop the floors? You know, all this kind of stuff. And then very quickly, she was bringing me on set every day and, you know, was like, do you want to go out to dinner? And, you know, just really kind of became my New York mom in so many ways. And, you know, she really fostered me through college and was like, you should take from this professor, you know, they'll really push your work in so many ways. And, um, you know, having, it's very difficult as a photographer to edit your own work. And Mary Ellen is an absolute, was an absolute master of that. So I was really able to learn how to edit my own work and have like harsh criticism and understand what the threads of commonality are between different subjects matters and, you know, understanding composition and color and light and and, and so many different things. So I was able to really have like a strong portfolio very, very young and even before I went into college. So I think having all of that like pre-work before and then going to college and really honing my technical skills and understanding, you know, exposure better and printing better and, you know, studio lighting better and all those things. Mm-hmm. But Mary Ellen was like very loose. She's like, you know, go out, photograph your friends. You know, you've obviously always been a huge inspiration and subject for me. So it was just a lot of photographing you over the years and, um, when I met an agent right after college, I actually met her on Craigslist because mm. I was looking for a job. Um, and I was like, hey, I can be your assistant. And I was going to oh, eventually okay. wait and I tell her that I wanted to be a photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually after I was like, okay, let me build a relationship with her, et cetera. And then I gave her some references and obviously they were like, oh, we love her picture. She's a great photographer. So she ended up finding some work I had online and she was like, I think you're a photographer. So let's get you in the office. You can work for me for a couple of weeks and then let's build up your portfolio, start getting you clients, et cetera. And um, that's kind of how it started. And it was really like off to the races then. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the Pop Sugar and M. Jemmy job, those oh, yeah. were they coming from agent or were you also applying to be? Agent? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, you obviously in photography, you can be freelance or you can work in house. And uh, I had been doing freelance for a long time. And typically it's kind of the opposite. You start in house somewhere and then eventually build up the clients and connections and then eventually go, go freelance. And um, I had met a creative director and I just really clicked and vibed with her. And I think she was doing some amazing things. Um, at Pop Sugar, which is, you know, a, a big, big media publication, you know, digital mostly of, and they do live activations and events and things like that. But, you know, sometimes you just meet people and you totally vibe and you think, wow, this is going to be really cool. And I really liked her energy. I thought her work was amazing. And, um, you know, I'm a big person of organization and, um you know, systems. I love systems. Everything has to have a system when, you know, when I'm working on something, you know, and this was something that had absolutely no systems whatsoever. So, you know, they had never had a photography department before and they had never had a studio before. So it was kind of starting from the ground up of building out the department and building out the equipment and the props and all this kind of stuff. So it was, you know, a bunch of trial and error, but to be able to 
kind of start at like a start a quote unquote startup when it's a very big media company, I thought was a really interesting experience. And I thought that was something that I wanted to do, which is why I went from freelance to in-house mm-hmm. and then continued to work in-house under that same creative director when she switched companies. Um, you know, you kind of get to working in your little pod almost and, and with certain people you just love to work with and you know you love to work with them. So yeah, I just I, I would continue to work for her again for sure. Mm, that's awesome. And I think that creative director is a subscriber to Rise yes, Up. She is. Yeah, yeah, cool. I shipped her yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's so valuable to understand. And you were able to go freelance right out of college, really because of your recs and because of your portfolio. Yes. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So I know what, you know, obviously I know a lot of the inside details of that 15 years. And how did you cultivate a relationship to your own personal creativity when you're also on these really tight production schedules and Mm -hmm. you're kind of pulling your eyebrows out at times, at least from afar? That's what it looked like having to sort of churn and burn all of this content for these big media companies. And what was it like? cultivating your own creativity and your own projects because I think it's important for our listener to understand because they're not seeing your work visually right now is that right I I saw a lot of your work come out of your time with Mary Ellen and your time with Annie Leibovitz and Mm -hmm. how different that work is than when you were working in-house and the discrepancy there between you know, creating and like churning and burning in the production mode and Mm -hmm. then really protecting your own creative vision and your own personal work. So what did that balance look like? Yeah, that's, those are all really good questions. And I think I'll start by answering it with some, some pieces of advice that I've gotten that have been, um, groundbreaking and earth shattering for me in my career. And, and one of them is from Mary Ellen and, um, the way that she worked was um, so admirable to me because she would, well, I mean, when I first started working for her, she told me that the photography world is over. You know, there's no reason for me to try to become a photographer. It's going to be a waste of time. Um, You know, they're not making publications like they used to make. So, and she wasn't wrong. She definitely was not wrong Mm -hmm. at that. Um, And wait, can we just pause for a quick moment and explain Mm -hmm just in a couple sentences, what that means that. Yes. Okay, go ahead. So Mary Ellen was working in, you know, the height of uh, like People magazine when it was, you know, people were, they were reporting about war zones. They were reporting on um, celebrities here and there, but it was more like very in-depth articles and current events that are not like clickbait current Mm. events today. Got it. You know, she would be on assignment for months and months and it would be a very in-depth story and she would be traveling all over the world. And it wasn't just for people. It was for time. It was for the New York Times. It was for a ton of publications that don't exist anymore. But, you know, the the way in which she was able able to report world events was very, very in-depth and different than how it is reported today. Got it. Um, So... The advice you know, she gave you. Yeah. And she was kind of like, um, towards the end of her career, people had kind of changed. I'm using People Magazine as an example, had sort of changed from long form documentary pieces into, you know, the tabloids that you see today on the stands. So as she saw the media landscape change so much, she really started to lean into her personal projects And anytime she would get a big commercial job, she would always then switch the dime immediately and go into a workshop for several months or go travel for several months to work on a personal project. And I just saw that balance and dichotomy of like, okay, wow, like she's able to sacrifice her personal ethics to take a commercial job because, you know, the price tag might be amazing. But then she immediately turns that into something that is her own personal project and something that creatively really, really gets her going. So I kind of saw that really early on of like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. And um, 
So she had always said, if you do commercial stuff, make sure you are always continuing to work on your own personal projects. Mm-hmm. And for me, I didn't have any commercial projects at the time. So it was only personal stuff. And that was 100% pure, uh, you know, non-judgmental me just shooting whatever the hell I wanted to shoot. And she would always say, if you don't know what to shoot, go shoot everything. So that was also very wonderful advice because then you're able to edit and understand like what's going on and what you like and and why you like it. And instead of just sitting there being like, well, it'd be really cool. I got very frustrated in art school because so many people would come to critique and just say, well, I had this idea that I really wanted to photograph it this way, but it didn't work out. And I'm like, but you never tried it. You know, you never actually took the picture to see if it would work out. Mm-hmm. And that's what Mary Ellen would never take that as an excuse. Oh, I wanted to try that. And she's like, okay, well, where is it? Let's look at it. So it was just a lot of film, a lot of trial and error. And um when I met the agent and when things started to shift and go more of in a commercial space, she, another piece of advice was, you know, the way that you view things and the way that you capture things, you know, I'm like, I don't understand how this is commercial, right? Like I'm just out photographing my friends. I'm photographing my sister. I'm, you know, just doing things that I like to do. And she was very much like the energy and the lighting in your work, whether it is very spontaneous moment or an instinctual moment, you're going to be hired to make that happen out of nothing, Mm. right? So that's like, you have to create that energy again and replicate that in a studio with tons of people looking at you, tons of monitors around, tons of lighting equipment. You know, you're going to have to be able to direct and orchestrate that to get that same moment. And for me, that was like, oh, wow, okay. That that was like a big a big shift in my in my mindset and how I worked, because I was like, okay, now all these free fun moments I have to I have to recreate, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so, yeah, you know, and then coming in house to me, creativity and production were the same thing, mm-hmm. which was Got not it. how I had ever worked before, um, you know. And typically, when you come to set, things have been you know, you've been in pre-production for weeks, maybe even months. So everything is agreed upon. Everything is, okay, this is how many shots we have to do. So this it's what pretty this hard to make it spontaneous and fun and creative. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. So then that creativity just kind of turns into a, a like production line, right? Of like, okay, this is, you know, and that's when I was like, oh, I love this because like the system side of my brain was like, yes, yes, yes. You're doing such a good job. You're nailing it. Like you're doing all of this, getting all of this work that you wanted. You know, you're building your portfolio. I'm shooting in studios that I've always wanted to shoot in and, you know, working with incredible people, prop stylists, stylists, you know, digital techs, uh, just so many people. And that was so fun, right? Like, you know, it was such a different mm-hmm. experience. And then um, I think I really, things in my body started to break down. You know, I was on set five days a week. You're eating catered food twice a day for, you know, God knows how many meals. Um, you know, like your idea of choice and your idea of spontaneity, your idea of creativity, you're like, wait, where did that go? You know, how how did this happen? How did I end up here when I thought that's what I wanted? Mm. Yeah. Um, and then what was really the turning point for you in your body? And, you know, if I remember correctly, a lot of your personal work got backburnered because there was just yeah. so much time and it was like 10 hour days. Totally. That you were constantly photographing. Yeah. And so what were some of the inner body messages you were getting that this isn't working and Mm -hmm. some of the physical messages you were getting that this isn't working. Yeah. I would say mostly in my body mind, it manifested as anxiety where things that I used to love to do, like riding the subway or getting in a long Uber ride and just exploring different parts of the city. And, you know, all of that became, um, just like pure survival mode. Like, oh my God, I'm so stressed out. How am I going to get from point A to point B and not let so-and-so happen? Or, 
you know, I'm so stressed out. I can't even think about, you know, what I want to do this weekend, or I can't even entertain the idea of wanting to do a personal project because I just don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. But I think that it took me a while to understand the idea of capacity. And that really came when I started to work with you and through Connect to Spirit, because God, you must have heard me mm-hmm. spew on the phone so much of like, well, I really want to, I really want to do this. And I really want to have time for my commercial projects. And I mean, my personal projects, but I have so much commercial work, I can't handle it. And, you know, again, going back to Mary Ellen of like, well, just do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I was like, okay, yeah, just do it, dude. Suck it up and do it. Just suck it up and make what you want or work on the weekend or make a personal shoot or use all your connections that you have to book a model to do a shoot that you want, you know? Yeah. And then it's just pure burnout, right? Like pure burnout at that point of like, my body's exhausted. My mind is exhausted. Um, I became pregnant and, you know, all of that stuff just really started to, you know, and I talk about this later and you and my first daughter are very similar cancerian spirits and cancers have an energy of like, you either get on my level or you get out, you know? (laughs) And I think even in utero, Daisy, my first daughter, who's a cancer was very much like, get on my level. Get on my level or get out, right? Like, get, on get on my, my level. level. I will raise what hell. I want and have a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and people thought I was so crazy, right? Like people thought I was so crazy if I tried to talk about like these energetic signs I'm getting from a baby in my womb. They're like, yeah, dude, you're crazy. Just how are you going to walk away from a job and a life that you've built for 15 years? You know, mm. especially my husband, right? Like just mm-hmm. so crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I yeah, knew but he was, he also is a creative in his own way in his career. And he had hit that point of burnout before you. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. And so, you know, it was really Daisy was the catalyst to get out of the city. And I mean, I get it. When I closed my yoga studios, everybody was like, you're walking away from your dream life. How could you possibly be doing this? This is just... Mm-hmm utter madness that you're willing to walk away from your dream life. So I'd love to pick it up there and understand really leaving New York, coming to Taos Mm -hmm. and getting more invested in your own personal work and egoically. What did that feel like to say bye to shooting five days a week? And, you know, this was pre-pandemic. So there was still this idea that oh, I have to be in New York or LA to make this profession work. If I don't live in these two, you know, metropolitan buzzing creative meccas, then I'll just die as an artist. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was it like egoically to say like, I'm going to listen to the spirit of my new child. I'm going to listen to the spirit of the land. You know, Mm -hmm. our parents didn't live out here yet. It was just me and Dan out here. And I'm, you and Maddie decided to leave New York and really how Taos has affected your own personal work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, we grew up in a very small town in the Appalachian Mountains, and it was like heaven to us growing up, you know? It was just like you had uh, endless nature. We were outside all day, every day. You know, and I had always known in the back of my head that I did. Crick and build forts. Go into the river. (laughs) You know, I always knew in the back of my mind, I did not want to raise my kids in New York and coming from such a small town, Abingdon, Virginia, what up? Um, you know, I think it, for me, it was like either in the middle of nowhere or New York. I don't want anything in between. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I yeah. still have that mentality today of like, I will not live in another city unless it's New York, or I will just continue to live here in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, uh, I also don't think like egoically, I really had a choice, right? Like m- I had to leave my ego, check my ego at the door and be like, this is beyond me right now because I am pregnant and I moved when I was 36 weeks pregnant. So you only have till you're 40 weeks pregnant, right? So I had four weeks to kind of get my shit together to say like, we're out of here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't think I really egoically had a choice. My body and 
you know, Daisy were very much like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be born here. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, how can I quickly organize my life and in, in a way that is easeful and um, abundant and not abundant and like, oh, let's go and find a new house or whatever. Right. It was like, let's pare everything down, everything down. We got rid of so much stuff. You know, I moved with a rolling suitcase, right? I got a one-way flight. I'm on a on I'm on a plane and I have four weeks to like meet a doctor and figure out how I'm gonna have how I'm gonna have give birth, right? Yeah, Daisy had it all figured out. Yeah, oh she did. And that's what mm-hmm. I had to like keep telling myself. I'm like, she has this figured out. Oh, everything's gonna be okay. Um yeah. So I think yeah, I mean, it's still, it was definitely difficult being like, well, how am I going to make work, right? How am I going to get commercial clients? How am I going to, how am I going to survive, right? Because I mm-hmm. was making great money, you know, mm-hmm. and then yeah. all of a sudden to be making great money to being, having a one week old baby in a city that you've never lived in before with no salary, you're a little bit like scratching your head, like, what did I just do? Mm-hmm. Um, but you yeah, know, again, pause there and understand and just make it super clear also to the listener to, to step away from an artistic job with a salary. And then all of a sudden having to be putting in your own money to launch your own projects. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What did that transition feel like as an artist and a photographer? That's a very different feeling, right? Because I'm on set. I have endless budget, right? I can go to craft services whenever I want. I can get whatever light I want. I don't have to think about how I'm going to pay my assistant. I don't have to think about any of those things. But then all of a sudden, you're like, uh-oh, I want to make a magazine. How do I do that? How do I pay for that, right? You know, I want to buy a new camera. How do I do that? <laughs> um, so all of those things are you know, you kind of scratch your head and figure out like, okay. And it's much different when it's your own money on the line. You Mm -hmm. know, we've had discussions about this before of like, okay, how, how am I going to, I got to make my sense stretch a lot farther than my commercial budgets because I'm the one that's bankrolling this. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally. So it's also much different um, energy, right? Like, you know, you think of, I think about this like, okay, I want to make money as an artist, right? How do I do that? First of all, I go buy other people's art, right? Mm-hmm. Like you never ask somebody to do something for free for you because you're like, well, I need to make my money. So when they come back to me, I want them to pay me for my services. Mm, totally. Right. And I so think that's I- very important that, you know, I learned early on to not do the free trade collaboration thing. Yeah, that's a big one. Huge and one. It's a really hard boundary to hold at first. Now that I have more of a surplus as an artist, I can definitely do that. And in the last year, I've seen myself do it a few times, mm-hmm. which feels great to do. But you can't do it at first when you don't have any money coming in the door and it's all going out the door. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's when I I really started my own business, which is called Restra Studio, which is a design and creative branding branding house. Um, and I started taking clients that weren't you. And I started taking clients <laughs> that weren't my dad, right? Like, you know, well, you and I did do some trades, but once Live Lightly could actually pay you, I was yes, an assistant on at least always an hourly. Yeah. Yes. Always paid me. <laughs> And to me, I was kind of like, why is she doing that? It's cool. I'll just do it for free, you know? But now we have a much different, now I have a much different understanding of once I started working for my own clients, right? And I'm starting with small businesses where Live Lightly for one of them was like, that's your blood, sweat, and tears. That's Mm -hmm. your little Mm -hmm. baby, right? And you're trusting me to make labels and to photograph your products that you wholeheartedly believe in. And that's not just you, but it's other companies that I've worked for too that are paying me their own hard-earned money, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and you're trusting me with that process. That's a huge thing, right? So that was a big like, okay, you need to, you need to get your creative systems in place and, and figure out how to work more one-on-one in this kind of much more intimate setting. 
Mm, totally. Um, which I've loved to do. And it's always, you know, my clients pay me. So I'm like, okay, when is your new new shop going live? I'm going to be the first person to place that online order mm, and pay so full awesome. price, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so that was a big, big turning point in understanding for me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really valuable, you know, really to the nth degree because it sets an energetic frequency of your art is worth it and so is mine. Definitely. Yeah. And I think also being a commercial photographer, um, again, this was something that Mary Ellen taught me is that you are the last person to pay yourself, period. You know, you have to pay your crew before you take your cut, which is something that I still practice today of like, okay, if I'm going to be out, I'm going to be out, but I'm paying my crew and I'm taking care of my people. And those people are so so loyal, which is very important too. Yeah, definitely. I think that we're both similar in the sense that long-term sustainable relationship has been very valuable valuable in both our own sort of spiritual evolution and artistic careers. And when you learn that early on and it's not this sort of, you know, move on quickly or get the next job or whatever it may be, that there's a a sense of authenticity and honoring everyone that you work with or that's willing to contribute to also your happiness and your mission and your art. And that really is sort of the foundational understanding of Rizo. Definitely. I'd love to know really how and why you decided to become one of the founding members of Rizo and how the process of bringing the first magazine to print was. Sure. That's a good question. Um, you know, at heart, I'm an art school nerd, you know, and there would be so many, like uh, the um, design library at Parsons was incredible, right? They had every independent artist zine you could think of, every independent publication you could think of, and, you know, to big Toshin books, right? Like it was everything in between. And mm-hmm. I would just spend hours and hours and hours in that library, just like digesting as much information and as much artwork as I could, because the, it was just incredible. So I've always had a, a, my love for print has, you know, really started, started there. You know, it can be so powerful when, you know, you, you, you know, print is a very slow process, right? It's not something that happens overnight. And you really have to take time and dedication and understanding how somebody is going to interact with that product and how the design and layout can can captivate that person. Mm-hmm. And that's what it does. You know, that's just that's it's uh, an incredible process. So, you know, I think the idea of like having a magazine in art school, it's like the dream, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, you're like, OK, well, what am I going to put in the magazine? Right. Um, you know, and it's important and I've always found so much inspiration in other people's work and also in other people's final, you know, presentation of that work, but it's so much about the process for me. I love understanding how people work and the materials that they use and why they use them and how they use them. And, you know, I think that process is the most fascinating. So the idea of like creating, a a network of global artists in all different mediums, right? It doesn't have to be just photography. It doesn't have to be writing. It, it can be anything and everything. And that was, you know, when you came to me with that idea, I was like, yeah, that sounds incredible, right? There's there's no um, like guidelines set on it. It's just pure expression, right? So, and everybody contributing to that pure expression is is really beautiful. And, you know, as we were getting all the submissions and we were like, wow, that's so cool. Wow, that's amazing. And like reading everything and, you know, you're just like, it's a little bit scary at first because you're like, well, there's no theme and there's no um, like commonality between everything. And, you know, but I think once you hold the issue in Rizo as its core is about creating those stories within the artwork that is just a that everybody is taking the time to create and submit, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that's the story. That's where it is. Um, so I had so much fun looking at all the submissions and understanding the the messages behind them and how they were going to 
relate to each other and talk to each other and live with each other in, you know, the 72 pages. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, yeah. So that was like such an amazing process to lay out. And as I've started my own design business, um, you know, design has become a passion of mine that I, that has always been there. It's right. It's just like sort of laid dormant for a while because I've always told myself, well, I'm not a designer. I'm a photographer, right? I can't mm-hmm. do both of those things. Um, but this was a way to just really leave, like, you know, again, check that at the door and just say like, Hey, go for it. Right. Like to see what happens, see what looks good, see what works. Um, and you often don't get that space to explore and play, um, but you have to make that space for yourself. And that's to me, like what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. definitely the trade-off of launching your own projects and being really like the founder of your own projects is that there's no one looking over your shoulder, making sure that you get A, B, C, and D out of this yeah. production line. And so mm-hmm. while it can be very scary and very intimidating, and it's not for everyone, I totally get that. But it's also for some people who say, you know, I just want all creative freedom. That's what Mm -hmm. I want. And I will go to the end of the earth to make sure that I have the creative freedom to not mutate my work to be something that is for someone else or to make sales or whatever it may be that it is actually a creatively free process. Definitely. And to me, there's not a lot of spaces that exist like that. And to me, that's exactly what Rizo is for me. And then I want that to be for the other artists that are in the publication as well. Mm, yeah, right. Totally. Mm-hmm. Just like pure freedom, pure expression, pure creativity, right? Like you you don't have to be creating. Well, you got to meet the submission deadline. So you do have to meet <laughs> some kind of something. But again, just like pure expression, pure creativity. And, you know, I kind of, I think about like, oh, well, what am I going to do for the next submission? And I'm, it just gets my (laughs) wheels turning, right? Of like, oh, well, that could be so cool. And that could be so cool. And I haven't had the the space to do that, you know, probably since high school or Mm. early college, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's when, that's when creating and creativity was not tied to a budget, right? It was not tied to an outcome. It was not tied to anything. It was like, mm, I don't know, let's just see if this works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so and nice. Kind to- of always the most fun moments when totally right. Like there is no budget. The budget is just like, do I have a free hour to walk around and figure out what I want to do? <laughs> And it's, it's crazy because yeah. that's the most expensive budget, right? Mm-hmm. Is creating that hour mm-hmm. or creating that t- five minutes, right? Just creating that whatever time you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's segue there a little bit and talk about the boundaries it takes to make sure that you have that time and what that process has been like for you as a creator. Yeah, I think there's so much talk about like creative boundaries and how you cultivate that and this. And why I do think that's a very uh, legitimate conversation. Um, But to me, it was like, okay, uh, I don't have the time, right? Like I have two kids now. I have run a design business. I have a marriage. I have family. I have so many things where like the idea of like time and time to, you know, I'm using air quotes for that time to do to your own projects in theory doesn't really exist. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's like a non-negotiable for me. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, Matt, you got to take the kids. I'm closing the door. I'm, you know, doing whatever I need to do to focus on this. And you know, during nap times, you know, waking up early, doing it at bedtime, like, you know, so many things where you're like this idea of like time is just like so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to cut in and interject, though. I think that you're actually incredible at budgeting that time. Right. And you were breastfeeding Frankie when we were laying out the first, you know, final edit of volume yes. one for Rizo. And that there's something that is important to note that it it's very unglamorous 
Yes. When, when you make that time and it's not like, you know, this huge production studio in New York and you're wearing your cutest clothes and you get there on time and then yes. everybody's waiting for you to walk on set and because you did have a life like that. Yes. Right. And yeah. now there's a certain like grit and appreciation and you, you have to say a yes to only things that feel rejuvenative because you're going to be breastfeeding your daughter at the same time you're laying it out. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, time and um, yeah, that's right. It, it's not glamorous. And I think it's just, I had to uh, like value my own time, mm-hmm. right? To say mm-hmm. like, this time is valuable and I'm financially going to make the investment in this time where if you would have told me like, yeah, what can you, accom-, you know, two years ago when I was in New York, like, what can you really accomplish in two hours when your daughter is asleep, right? Like I would have said, oh, absolutely nothing. I need A, B, and C. I need it pre-produced. I need to have A, B, and C. I need to have this camera. I need to have this light. And I'm like, I don't have time for that now, right? <laughs> I, I literally don't. So I'm like, okay, my kids are sleeping. What can I get done? And how quickly can I get that done? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's where my like, again, time management skills are impeccable, but, you know, you have to like work that like a faucet, right? You need a little bit more hot, you need a little bit more cold, and then you kind of get everything flowing at the same time. Um, so that's why I'm saying like time has this, uh, it's like a double-edged sword in so many ways, because mm-hmm. now it's like not so glamorous. Like, well, yeah, I am breastfeeding and I'm trying to work on so many things or, you know, I'm sleep deprived and I'm trying to like work on, you know, your own personal projects. But those for me now are non-negotiables, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what I need to have the time for in order to be able to like exist in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if any of that made sense, but <laughs> no, no, it made perfect sense. Is that, you know, the landscape of time really changes. One, when you understand your own creativity, its value, its importance. And you what used to take six hours because there was all these moving parts and a lot of pressure can mm-hmm. get down to 35 minutes and you're creating work that you're much more emotionally connected to in less time because the like the lens in which you see your own work and your own creativity is much clearer. It's like boom, 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 as opposed to like so much outside pressure. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I think what was so interesting is kind of tying it back to like you making the financial investment in yourself. And when it's like your own money versus like a production money, I was so nervous when I had an insane, you know, incredible salary, great things. Like I was so scared to make a financial investment Mm -hmm. when like, you know, when I had the means to do it, right. And means and air quotes, right. And then now when I'm not having my uh, beautiful media budgets coming in and flowing in all the time, I'm like making much more financial risk of investing in myself because I'm like, I'm going to make that back, right? I'm going to make that back an X amount of time and I, it will happen, right? Which is just such a different, different mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that comes with self-study and self-trust and launching projects that flop and literally going, oh shit. Yeah. Okay. Like now I don't really have the option to fail on the next one. So I need to quickly pivot and absorb all of my learnings. Might that be mindset? Might that be actual tactical business decisions? Might that be lack of touch points with what is actually going to be digestible to the rest of the world, not just what I personally like, because I know that shit wouldn't sell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not like we're just creating art to sell, but if you want to keep creating art, then there has to be a happy balance there. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sort of your, I think this is, I wanted to ask this earlier in the podcast and we'll sort of double down on this question in certain ways, but your relationship to social media as a creator, and I know that school for you and a lot of your early work, especially with your major mentors was mostly film. 
Mm-hmm. And then when digital really started entering and the difference that that creates in immediacy and the process that goes into creating work. And then I, I want to say the devaluing that happened mm. when so much digital media hit the space. Yeah. So again, going back to Mary Ellen, man, I so wish that uh, I could, ha- you know, she passed away a couple of years ago. Well, no, a while ago at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, when I was working for her, she still shot film for a lot of commercial jobs, um, which is unheard of now, right? Yeah. Like you just don't have the you don't have the budget to shoot film for mm, a lot anything. But with digital, she used to call it chimping. She would say everybody that shoots digital is just a chimp because. <laughs> The immediacy of seeing exactly what you shot, people she would in her impersonation was so funny. She's like, You just see all these people hanging around cameras and hanging around the monitors, going, Ooh, ooh, ah, ah, ah. You know, they're all chimps, like looking at what they made. Mm-hmm. Um, I so wish I could see what her opinion about social media and Instagram would be at this point in time. Mm-hmm. But if you would show up to Mary Ellen's and you did not have a film camera and you only had a digital camera, you had to tape the back of your viewfinder so you could not see what you were doing. And that builds an insane amount of trust and understanding between yourself and a machine that you're working with, right? Like digital anybody can do it, right? Like you are immediately seeing like, oh, my exposure is off or, mm-hmm. oh, this is not right. Like the amount of understanding and and craft and, and skill that you have to have to shoot film versus digital is, is unparalleled, right? And even in all my studio and light classes in Parsons, you were not able to shoot digital. You had to shoot film. And at that time, that was a very, very expensive investment because you had to be shooting large format. You had to be shooting Polaroid because you had to put your Polaroids in critique. So nobody could Photoshop and you could not manipulate in the dark room your exposure that you made in the studio. Hmm. Yeah. Because you had to understand (laughs) ratios. You had to understand lighting and... Now you don't have to do that, right? Like you just fl- slap a filter on and, you know, you're like, oh, cool. I meant to, mm-hmm. to look like that, right? Yeah. And I think what's cool, I'm just going to interject, is that because you really understand that math and how to like work with a machine, right? Like you were always the tech go-to person that could fix mm-hmm. like so many things. Definitely. Right? You know, because you developed that relationship to film. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, everybody always talks about like, oh, film's like so much cooler and better than digital. But for me, it was about your intuition and your instinct coming through in a machine, right? Like those two things don't go together. Mm -hmm. And that for me was like, wow, that was just the coolest thing I think I had ever figured out. Like, you know, and then understanding on a spiritual and metaphysical level of like, okay, these instinctual things are coming out f- from me through a machine. So what does that mean? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? And in, in understanding and making sense of the world. Um, yeah, that was just so cool. So social media is something that I've never quite figured out, right? I've been also working behind the scenes in in making content for social media for big brands for a long time. So for me, I've always understood that it's fake, that it's always it's just like make-believe world that just doesn't exist and it does it exists now and people so take it as face value and take it as reality, which is so dangerous. And let's just so, pause there for a second and explain, you know the the retouching that happens the oh, creation yeah. of all of those scenes and you know the sort of vomiting of beauty standards that are so actually fake unrealistic yeah. and and how you know we're 18 months apart right so mm-hmm. there's a big a lot of pressure to look and create and have lives like you see Right. And you were on a six figure salary to create some of this, these fake scenes. Let's just sort of examine what that does to the collective psyche. 
Okay. So I'll give an example. And this was, you know, the uh, like last straw for me, right? Because once you start like building and con and and understanding your contemplative practice and even having a contemplative practice, you start seeing the world in completely different ways. And this was for me like simultaneously when like I was, you know, climbing higher and higher in the media world and this photography career, but also my contemplative practice was building substantially faster at the, and they were kind of these two things that were happening at once. Mm -hmm. And I remember I walked to set one day and it was a job for H&M. And, you know, H&M is obviously one of the biggest uh, fast fashion, yeah. um, just conglomerates that's ever existed, right? So they their fast fashion is producing at such a high rate that they can't even get the clothes to set to shoot that day to like go live in a couple months because the production line is just crazy. So they were always like a nightmare client because you couldn't get the clothes fast enough because they would be churning over and either like selling out so quickly or their production was backed up. And these one like silver sneakers that we had to shoot that were going to be the ones that were like the it sneaker of the season, they couldn't get. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was like a big, big, big production of like, how are we going to get these sneakers? Right. So that means that we have to hire people, three people to go around and shop at all of the different H&Ms across the city to try to find these silver sneakers. And nobody could find these silver sneakers. Right. So finally it gets to like the VP's desk of whatever of like, crap, we need these sneakers and we need these sneakers tomorrow to shoot. Right. Okay go to sleep, whatever. The sneakers, it's going to figure itself out. Get to set that morning. We get two left feet <laughs> of the silver sneakers, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're not even a matching pair of sneakers. And I'm just like laughing hysterically. Like you guys, how, how is a model going to wear two left shoes and how are we going to make it look cute and sellable for your Instagram campaigns? right? Like that's just crazy to me. Mm -hmm. So again, you can't even get the product that you're trying to shoot. And then you have the added pressure of like, okay, now I have to make two left feet worth hundreds of millions of dollars that they're like banking on this being like the thing of the season that's going to make them all this money. You're just like, what? H how did this happen? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of look back at like, okay, well, this is a fast fashion production line that is incredibly toxic to humanity and to the earth. And then now I'm having to like have this poor model where these two left shoes and then I'm trying to sell that. Mm -hmm. And then I got to retouch like a madman to make these two left feet look like a left shoe and a right shoe. Mm hmm. You know, it's just, it, it, you just like are scratching your head, like, how, how did this happen? Right. And how am I getting paid an insane amount of money to make that work? So all of these other huge corporations can be making bank off of that. Yeah. And killing people, having toxic factory environments and, you know, killing the environment and all these things. It just didn't make sense. Right. Did not make sense. Doesn't make sense. Mm hmm. And so that was really the breaking point of X amount of products and campaigns that you had shot with very similar extractive, destructive ethos. Totally. Yeah. And I'm sitting here worried about like there being biodegradable silverware on set. Mm, yeah. So right. Like hypocrisy. Yeah. Like yeah. who cares? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just bizarre. Yeah. And so that has really affected your personal relationship to social media and how you use that for your businesses or, you know, creating um, your own brand for your own business because of just the falsity of that. Yeah. Because all of that is, you know, I gave that long winded story as, you know, next time you see a pair of shoes online, right? See all of the um, crazy things that had to happen to get that targeted ad to you is mm. pretty, pretty insane. Yeah. Pretty gut wrenching. Totally. Yeah. So I've always understood this like idea of social media as like not being real. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, you saw like a lot of people with the rise of, you know, I remember, this is funny. I remember my first commercial job that I had right out of college. Instagram had just started that week. So I remember like creating my handle and, you know, having all those filters and things like that, where I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. And like, I can share pictures that I like to share. And then it just became this huge shopping platform and, uh, like content real beast where you're like, wait a second, I don't need to be like, for me, I don't need to be spending my time kind of fitting into that mold because I'm getting paid to make content to fit that mold. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And then, you know, working at that level, especially early on, you know, we've sort of laid this yellow brick road of, you know, golden mentors and all of these things of being able to be successful right out of undergrad, mm-hmm. which is pretty rare. And, yeah. you know, what were some of the ways that you dealt with rejection as a mm. photographer and a creator? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, um, I think you got to develop really hard skin and understand that, you know, I've had my work ripped apart right? I've had it, you know, left critiques in tears because you're just like, wow, how could somebody be so mean, right? (laughs) Um, But those were like very defining moments of like, well, F you, right? This is is what I want to do. This is what I think is valuable. This is what I like. And this is what I want to look at, you Mm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I want to spend my time creating. So you have to develop really thick skin very early on and understand that your n- work is not going to be for everybody. And that's okay. Right? Like the the reason that you create your work is for you, not anybody else. And that's a lesson that I had to learn very early on. You know, even with my first like critique in college, I remember like my... um to, to get into college, I had to go have my work critiqued. And I went back to Mary Ellen's and I was in tears. Mm-hmm. And she was like, this is not going to, th- this, this you cannot put up with, you know, mm-hmm. um, like this, you have to understand that this is for you and for nobody else. So yeah, it's difficult. And you're constantly under um, scrutiny and under rejection. And that's happening at the flick of a thumb, right? Like, mm-hmm as fast as you scroll through Instagram. And I think that you have to, when you have those difficult moments, it's how you bounce back. Right. And Mary Ellen would always say, you're only as strong as the last photograph that you took. So make that really, really good. You know, you can't rest on your portfolio that you shot eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, what are you shooting now? What was the last picture you made? And that it is burned into my ethos as a human being now, because I think it's just so valuable. Right. And you can apply that to to writing, to to anything like you're only as good as the last word, words that you wrote. So that makes you not to be complacent with your work and understand that it's a not going to be for everybody. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really, really valuable advice. One of my really good friends gave me the advice for transitory nature to write a book that you would write in five years, you know, mm. not not a book that I would have written when I started writing it in 2017. Yeah. And so good. Yeah, so good. Because mm. then it's really future work, right? Like you're really committed to creating future work. And I think that's a very different mindset. A lot of care, a lot of time, a lot of attention has to go into creating work like that. That isn't work that you made yesterday and now it's gone with yesterday. Exactly. And I think maybe for the last couple minutes here, we could explore, you know, I know rejection or reading something I've written 10 years ago. I a little cringy sometimes mm-hmm. because you want to be able to one handle rejection and two be your own biggest critic but not scare yourself out from creating work that you're proud of in the future yes that's and a sort very of, fine line yeah and what that process is like in the inner body and what it's like being your own biggest critic mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's tough. Because you think, you know, there it's like the design process, the photography process, I'm sure is so similar to the writing process where you're like, oh my God, I have this, the best idea. This is going to be earth shattering. And then you start it and you're like, fuck, this is so bad. And then you're like, mm, okay, maybe it's not too, too terrible. Let's just like keep seeing what where it goes. And then you're like, wow, okay, I'm done. I'm going to put this out into the world. And then it either flops or goes nowhere or doesn't take off as fast as you want or, you know, is still just sitting on your shelf or only turned into a pretty picture on your wall, right? Like Mm -hmm. no matter what the outcome is, you can't skimp on the process. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, very difficult to understand unless you're constantly creating in the flow all the time. Mm-hmm. And not all the time of like, oh, I have to be making, you know, X amount of pictures a day or whatever. It's like, okay, maybe I'm not even making a picture that day, but I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about how I want the light to look. I'm thinking about how I'm going to capture it in my mind. I'm thinking about how I'm going to design it on a page, right? Like that flow and that understanding and that conversation is always happening in your mind, always happening in your brain and in your body. Mm-hmm. And that is such a beautiful process that should never be taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or abandoned, which I think is exactly. more often the case when, you know, life gets busy, which it always is fucking busy, right? So that's just not an excuse either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that one, I wanted to start Rizo, but two, to be able to put work out into the world every three months is it's a happy balance between the way that we see all these digital creators creating, which has really monopolized the market on the idea of how we sell art and share art Mm -hmm. and how much that cheapens the process and the conversation of contemplation that we're talking about, right? And as a longtime meditator, you're always in contact with your spiritual essence. It's definitely never not there. And as I've cultivated the craft of writing, I also feel like it is very, very similar, if not the exact same thing, when Mm -hmm. you're always in contact with that process. And sometimes you can create amazing work in 30 days, and sometimes you can create amazing work in three and a half years. Right. But that process is always, it's like this wheel that's always turning. And Mm -hmm. when it stops, I wonder if I'm okay. (laughs) A hundred (laughs) percent. You're like, what did I not do today? Am I tired? Did I not drink enough? Did I not, you know, there's, that is the um, barometer for me of like, okay, what do I need to change to keep that wheel going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. How can I change it as quickly as possible to keep that wheel back going? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And then I think maybe just a, la- a few last words on the skill of, you know, one editing that you learned very early on your own work, which is very challenging, and then also being your own greatest critic and how those two things really support one another. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's so much editing so much relates to that wheel that we were just discussing. Because I think as somebody, you can get so tied to how long something took or how hard it was to get that picture or how hard it was to write that chapter in transitory nature, right? You get so tied to the process. And with that wheel, you have to understand that that wheel is going to be forever turning for the rest of your life. So you can't get too tied to, oh, well, I have to include this picture in the magazine because it took me so long to shoot. Right. You have to completely remove that mentality from looking at the entirety of the work. And your wheel for creation and your wheel for editing, yes, they're coming from the same place and the same essence and the same power, but your understanding of it is much, much, much different. Of like, okay, well, yeah, even though that picture took me three years to make it doesn't fit right now. So I'm going to have to put that to the side and check all of my ego and baggage that comes with letting go of that image and move on to what is the larger message of the work trying to tell me right now? 
because me getting hung up on the nuances that it took to make that work are not benefiting its entirety and how I want to put it out into the world. Mm -hmm. So that's a big, that was a big thing for me of like, okay. And just watching Mary Ellen, like she could edit something, you know, she could edit 500 photos down to the top 10 in literally 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a skill that you have to be exercising and using every single day. Right. So is it editing something in your closet? Is it decluttering your kitchen? Is it, you know, doing something down to the bare bones of like, what's the bigger message here? Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that you're doing, not just with imagery, but what you're doing every single day with your internal dialogue, with how I parent my children, how I cook meals, like all that stuff is again happening all the time. So that's pretty cool too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think, you know, you know, I've definitely gotten this question and I know that you have as well, where it's like, well, how are you always doing so much? How are you always putting so much work into the world? Mm-hmm. And it's like, ha ha ha, if you could only see what doesn't make it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like what what goes into public is a very small sliver of just exactly what you were saying, how to cultivate an artistic life, how to cultivate a contemplative life. And all yeah. of that actually creates so much space for creativity to live that like it's kind of nauseating almost mm-hmm. like how much could actually get created. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the and- process of editing is, you know, yeah. it it's it's everything almost mm-hmm. right. It, you can't start there because you'll really shoot yourself in the foot, but you you have to end there you know, and there's a cyclical process that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you have like a writing graveyard, just like I have a design graveyard and I have a photography graveyard and all things that don't ever make it into public, Mm -hmm. but maybe one day, you know, maybe one day. Exactly. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that really is a great organic stopping point for us and This was a very beautiful conversation and so real and so many different details. And then we went all the way from earthly details to the esoteric understanding of how to create. And obviously we could probably talk for another hour Mm -hmm. and we'll do that again on another episode. So thank you so much, Diggy. I call you Ducky. It's so weird to call you Diggy, but (laughs) you know, Ducky, because you look like Ducky from Land Before Time, just so everybody knows. Um, I really appreciate you, love you, and respect you, and love creating with you. Likewise, I'm so happy that we get to do this in the Rhizo space now. Me too. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll probably see you in a couple hours. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Love you. (laughs) Love you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the RhizoCast. If you love this episode, please download, subscribe, share it, and pass it along to a friend. Please subscribe to our Rizo Magazine subscription at www.rizomagazine.com. You can find Sue Hunt's work, your host, at www.suehunt.com. We love bringing you these in-depth conversations. Please remember the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as actionable advice. This podcast is a resource for general information, education, and artistic inspiration. Rizo is not liable for your decisions to implement information from this podcast.